All right, friends, you can be seated. Well, hey, I'm not Jerry. Uh, my name is Coleman Ford, and some of you may know me, some of you may not. Um, I come from this place. Um, this is, in a lot of ways, my home. This is, a, in a lot of ways, where I met the Lord, and the Lord met me through the gathered believers here at the Ridge Church. And so, uh, my wife and I have a long history here with the Ridge, being on staff previously a few years ago, uh, and coming back and forth and being in the lives of, of many of you. We count many of you friends and family in the faith, and we are so glad to be back here this morning. And so for me, it's a privilege just to open up the word uh, before brothers and sisters here at the Ridge Church gathered here in Carrollton, Texas, to think through what is the heart of obedience. So Jerry set up the heart of disciple last, year, the heart, or last week, the heart of hope, and I really want to focus in on today, what is the heart of obedience this morning. And so our text, as Matt read, was 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. And in this text, we see what the Lord desires for his people uh, in obedience. And from a gospel-centered obedience, uh, I hope to just share some thoughts with you and encourage you this morning with God's word. Uh, and so again, it's a pleasure to be here. Very thankful that we have the opportunity just to be back among friends. And so it's actually pretty nice because uh, I have, I've been long enough, I've been, been away long enough for many of you to forget the mistakes I made while I was here, but not away long enough for you to forget my name, which is good. Uh, and if you did, that's fine. That's okay. Uh, you can just call me brother or something like that. That's what I'll do to you if I can't remember your name. So um, just put my cards on the table, but we love you guys. So, because I love history, uh, let me tell you a story. In the late 4th century of the Roman Empire, the Christian Empire, so to speak, had been established. Uh, early in the 4th century, you have a man named Constantine who had come to faith, so to speak, or at least given privilege to the Christian faith as a, a, his favored religion or religion of choice, perhaps. And that trajectory leads to the end of the 4th century where an emperor named Theodosius declares that the Christian faith is the religion of the Roman Empire. It is now the Christian Roman Empire. And so this is a very important thing for us to remember because I think in a lot of ways this is what some of us have thought of in our own day and age, that we live in a Christian land, that we live in a Christian sort of place. The reality is, a few years later in the early 5th century, Rome fell to Gothic invaders. There was no such thing as the Roman Empire anymore, or at least it was just a fragmented reality of what once was. And so there is now disparate, disconnected kind of understanding of what the empire is. And Christianity is still the privileged religion, still the religion of choice, but there's chaos. There's disarray. There's disconnectedness among the body and among people in the empire. And people were asking the question, what do we do now? As a Christian, how do I exist in the chaos that I see around me? So one man arose during this time, about a century later, by the, man, uh, by the name of Benedict of Nursia. And I have no idea where Nursia is, somewhere in Italy, but that's where he's from. And he came up with the idea, or he established the idea of 
Uh, being obedient in this culture means I need to retreat from this culture in order to practice the Christian faith in all its uh, glory, in all its essence. I need to retreat from the culture. And so while monastic spirituality or monastic movement was nothing new, he was one who codified it. He was one who put it all together, and he is the one for which we now know Benedictine monasticism or the rule of St. Benedict. Maybe some of you have heard this. And so why does this matter? Why am I giving you this history lesson? Um, I'm a history nerd, so that's part of the reason. But also, this has to do with what Peter is talking about when it comes to a heart of obedience in a non-Christian culture, or what I might call a post-Christian culture that we exist in today. And so when we think about options for how to practice faithful Christianity, there's many people who have risen even in our own day who have given us uh, other ways in which we might think about practicing the Christian faith. One man in particular by the name of Rod Dreher has written a book called The Benedict Option. In fact, he's reflecting on the life of St. Benedict and saying, this is actually the paradigm that we need to recapture for faithful Christian practice in our own day. He's saying that we need to, in essence, retreat from the culture. We need to pull our kids out of the schools. We need to shut ourselves off and guard ourselves from any sort of cultural um, contamination into Christianity. And therefore, we will be able to practice faithful obedience to Christ. And while this option may be attractive to some, I want to argue that it's not the biblical option that's given to us. Now, I'm not trying to despair everything that's happened in a monastic movement. There are some good things that happen there. But in the essence of a faithful Christian life, we do not have the option to retreat. We do not have the option to practice our obedience in secret. Rather, we have the obligation to practice our obedience in the sight of all. But this is how it's done. It's done by reflecting on the gospel. The gospel of grace provided to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. This is the option that we have to practice this faithfully among men and women in our everyday lives, in our homes maybe for some, in our communities certainly, in our workplaces, and in other spheres of influence. This is how we are to be obedient, to practice this in front of others. Uh, and so, I'm not going to get into all the details of the book, but I do want to look at what the Apostle Peter says as Matt read to us. The Apostle Peter gives us the paradigm for faithful Christian obedience. And here's how he does it. He calls us to look back to the past. And then he calls us to look forward to the future in order to understand how we are to live and exist in the present today. So if you're taking notes or if you're one who likes to take notes, you're going to look, here's the three kind of movements that I'm giving you. The past, the future, and the present. This is how Peter talks about our Christian obedience, putting it into perspective. And here's the crucial point that I want us to understand, that if we uh, do not understand the gospel, we will not get obedience right. If uh, we understand the gospel, we will have a joy-filled obedience, but if we miss the gospel, we will have a joyless and frustrating and perhaps fruitless obedience. 
So it's crucial that we look back. It's crucial that we look back at what the gospel says. So Christian obedience is impossible if something has not already occurred in your past. Namely, salvation by grace alone, applied to you by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Peter says earlier in the chapter, verses three through five. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And here's the reality, friends, that we need to remember, is that God's salvation is by his mercy alone. Apart from God's mercy, there is no salvation. Our version of salvation, a a sinful, selfish version of salvation, is defiled. It's perishable. It's fading. But a God-centered, a God-perpetuated salvation is what he says is, what? Imperishable. Undefiled. Unfading. Because it is God at the center. It is him who is accomplishing these things. And he is not, here's, here's the reality for us. He has not just made salvation Uh, merely available. He hasn't just kind of opened the door and said, hey, would you guys just go in? Just kind of push, you know, kind of make your way through? No, he has not only made salvation available, he has accomplished salvation and worked it on our behalf, in our hearts. There's a key difference here, friends, between just making salvation available and actually making salvation accomplished and applied. There is an eternal difference between those two, and we need to get that right. Otherwise, we will not get obedience right. So it's key. It's key to do that. And so what else does Peter say? It's not just a salvation. It's actually a salvation that has Christ and his resurrection at the center. It's guaranteed because of those things. That's a good word for us today, that Christ being the center has accomplished those things for us. At all points of this salvation, God is directing it. It is guarded by his power. It is by his mercy. And it is actually secured and worked out through his will. Here's what I love about the salvation that Peter proclaims. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. Friends, this is a Trinitarian work of salvation that all members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are a part of this plan of redemption. That working together and applying it to the church, the triune Lord receives glory. And here's another very cool thing that I think is uh, worth mentioning is that the gospel is not new. It's ancient. It's not something that came about 2,000 years ago uh, on a whim of, of one guy and 12 followers. It is something which has been established before the foundations of the world. The gospel is not some fly-by-night 
sort of, uh, of thing. It is the eternal message of hope. The gospel is eternal as the Lord who stands behind it. So the gospel was planned in the mind of God and is promised at the beginning of time and manifested at the chosen time through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and here's what Peter uses. He uses the word elect. Tricky word, right? Can trip some people up. But here's the good news about that word. Is that word in biblical perspective means God's favor and love is upon you. Is that you are chosen. That is an affectionate term that the scriptures use to talk about the Lord working in your life. That God has placed his favor on you, believer, church, and his love is always with you. No matter what you do, no matter when you fail, right? God's favor is there. It's not removed. It's not replaced. He's not saying, well, I tried with you. I'm moving on to someone else. He's saying, no, you have my love. You are chosen. You are elect. So it's a good word. It's a word that is affectionate. It's intimate. It speaks about who God loves. And I love what a Puritan pastor Thomas Watson once said. He said, let us then ascribe the whole work of grace to the pleasure of God's will. God did not choose us because we were worthy, but, get this, by choosing us, he makes us worthy. That's the good news of election. Therefore, that's meant to encourage us, to remind us of God's love and his pleasure and his comfort and his strength provided to his people. That when you are weary, maybe this morning, maybe this moment, God's love and his comfort is with you. That when you leave this place and you face the trials of life, God's strength and his mercy are upon you. His favor is with you. That's good news, right? That is the gospel which we proclaim, and that's looking backwards to what uh, the Lord has done. And this is how Paul says it. He says this in Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The key word here is now. This is true for those who are in Christ now. When you read this tomorrow, now. When you read this 10 years from now, now. Now there is no condemnation. This is always true for you, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good news. Looking back at what God has accomplished on our behalf. So Peter states that it was Christ who is the lamb without blemish or spot. That was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is key, friends. Because before you even made a profession of faith, if you have made a profession of faith in Christ, Christ was foreknown. Before the first church was established, Christ was foreknown. Before Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, Christ was foreknown. Before Adam and Eve dwelt in the garden, Christ was foreknown. Friends, 
The gospel has been foreknown in the mind of God from eternity past, and we cannot even begin to comprehend that, but we get small little glimpses of what that looks like in scripture. And boy, is it good news. Because, again, the Son of God is from ages past. He is not some sort of fly-by-night, two-bit huckster. He is the eternal, ancient one who has the foundation of our faith. Eternal, never moving, always present. The gospel was the planned work of redemption from the beginning of time. It is not a flimsy promise. It's not a bait and switch. It is founded in eternity. So here's what Jesus Christ declares of himself in Revelation 22:13. He says, I am the alpha, the beginning of the Greek alphabet. I am the omega, the end of the Greek alphabet, the first and the last, the beginning and the end from all eternity, Jesus Christ, from all time, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith is the eternal one. So if the author of our faith is eternal, friends, so is your security and hope. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your security is sure and sound. Because our author and perfecter is eternal. And here's the reality. If I was the author of my faith, I'd fail. Right? If you were the author of your faith, fail. Every time. But thanks be to God that he, Jesus Christ, is the author, founder, perfecter of our faith. To his glory, to his praise, the work of our salvation because of him applied to us is sound, secure. Rest in that, friends. In the trials of your life, rest in that. He is sound, he is secure. God's favor rests with his people because of his sovereign love, not, check this, not because of our ability. How terribly upsetting would it be if this salvation depended on us? How Utterly crushing would it be to your soul if your salvation depended on you. It would absolutely be a weight you could not bear. Some of us in here maybe are still trying to bear that weight. But the good news for you today is Christ removes that burden because of his finished work, not the work you are trying to accomplish. If we get that wrong, friends, we get obedience wrong. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But without understanding this eternal and secure nature of the gospel and the reality of what has taken place, we will never obtain a true heart of obedience. Some of us are trying so hard to earn it. You're going to lose. You're going to fail. Because if you haven't grasped the beauty of the gospel as the foundation of your faith, then you're not gonna understand why you need to be obedient to it, why you need to have and how to even have a heart of joy, a heart of love, a heart of gratitude, a heart that says, yes, Lord, you won't know. And so the greatest lie perpetuated by Satan is that salvation depends on you. Such a belief robs God of his glory and salvation, and it elevates man beyond our capacity. 
And I would say the second greatest lie for those who have trusted in Christ is that obedience is optional. Obedience is optional, is a lie. Such a belief demeans the word of God and it tramples on his holiness. We, just being honest here, we make horrible saviors. So let's stop being one. We need to remember, and here's the message of 1 Peter, friends. The gospel is about grace. Grace is rooted in God's election. It's predicted through the prophets, and it's brought into the history through the sufferings, death, and glorification of Christ. God's grace will be consummated at the final unveiling of Christ. And this is why we need to look forward this final consummation as part of the full gospel message is pivotal in understanding Christian obedience. Without looking forward, we're just going to navel gaze and look in the past and forget, oh, we have something coming. We, we have something to look forward to. We have something in which we are pilgrims towards. So we have to look forward. And this is how Peter connects that to a heart of obedience. So Christian obedience always looks forward. So if we're looking into the future, it always looks forward. Here's why. Because we're seeking to deny instant gratification and resisting the urge to find ultimate happiness in temporal things. Here's the reality for us today in 2017 is that there are many things vying for your soul and helping and trying to get you to hope for something else. When you walk out of the stores, no, in this moment, right now, there are things vying for the hope of your soul. And therefore, we need to constantly remind ourselves of what's ahead, what's forward. This is what Peter's trying to do. And, and I know Jerry covered a lot of this passage last week, so I'm not going to reiterate too much. But if you didn't hear that last week, then this is all new material. And you don't have to go back and listen. So just believe me. Um, no, I like what Jerry said. It was good. So this is why hope matters for our obedience. And that's what I specifically want to focus on when it comes to what Peter's saying here. Peter says this, that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. Not partially, not two-tenths, maybe one-fifth, whatever, uh, not a small amount of hope, but fully put our hope in the grace that is revealed. Because here's the reality, is that every day we're bombarded with alternate stories that seek to persuade us towards a different hope. It's easy to set our hopes partially on Christ and then partially on something else. How about the hope of a good career? The hope of a perfect marriage or a perfect family? The hope of making that team, being with those friends, being looked at and favored by man. So many hopes vying for our souls. Therefore, we need to look ahead. And so whatever it is, these competing hopes are waging war for our attention. And we need to combat it. So what is this grace to be revealed? As Christians, what are we hoping for? Paul says this in Romans 8, he says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we hope for it with patience. Only the hope of Christ and his return is the sure and steady hope that can provide relief to our weary hearts. Many of us in here are weary today, and we need to remember the hope that is to come. This is the hope that can relieve our souls of the weight that it carries. Again, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There's better things to hope in if it's just this life. A dead man doesn't provide much hope unless that dead man is no longer dead. And unless that person who's no longer dead is coming back to rescue and to redeem and to reform and to refashion and to bring about a new kingdom full of hope where righteousness dwells. There is the difference for Christians and their hope. And so hope is an eternal perspective, looking forward to what lies ahead rather than keeping a narrow vision on the here and now. Friends, I cannot emphasize this enough for myself and for my own soul, and I hope and pray for your own as well, that if we are focusing in on what satisfies us now, we will always be left wanting more. We will always be left unsatisfied because nothing in this world can truly satisfy like the beauty and the glory of the Lord to come to be revealed. And so first, here's how this helps us. Why does a future perspective, and what does it mean for our obedience? I, I think I have a few things that can help us here. First, a future perspective helps us understand why our obedience matters. If we have a vision of what's to come, then our temporary trials will not ultimately defeat us. Yes, they're there. Yes, they will come, but they will not ultimately defeat us. We may dwell in them for a long time, and some of us in here may not see the end, but they won't defeat us because we have that hope, that future perspective. Second, a future perspective, I think, gives us a picture of what obedience should look like. So this is what I'm thinking here, is that when we understand that there is a coming day where the righteousness of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters of the sea, then we have a perspective of how to practice that today. We have a vision of what that should look like in our daily lives. That if righteousness is going to cover the earth, then maybe I can be a part of spreading that righteousness out among my life, in my community, in my home, in, with my family, whatever sphere of influence we may have. I can have that perspective because we see where the direction that our obedience is leading towards. Another thing that I think maybe the last thing that helps us with this future perspective is that we know that our obedience does not ultimately determine our salvation. Because if we see that forward, we know what's coming. Therefore, our obedience does not necessarily uh, determine that outcome. Rather, salvation is secured so that rather than trying to earn something in the future, we can look to the future with gladness and follow the commands of the Lord out of joy and love for our God. This is what looking forward helps us accomplish. Not perfectly, still messy, right? Someone in here messy? Give me a hand. I'm messy, you're messy. 
We are messy, but we have a vision of looking forward that helps us more faithfully practice obedience day in and day out. So believers have an unshakable hope for the future. That is Christ's resurrection as a pledge for their own future resurrection and redemption. This is the gospel hope. So while the work of the gospel was planned and accomplished in the past, the full realization of the plan is yet to come. While we can affirm the profound gospel truths, the reality is that we all have a day-to-day, ordinary life of seeking to be obedient to the Lord. There's nothing profound, maybe, about any of our lives. Maybe some of us do some really amazing things. Maybe some of us get a a, a bigger paycheck than someone else. Maybe someone has a, a larger sphere of influence than someone else. But in reality, we all have a pretty normal life. It's okay. You're a human. Anyone not a human in here? Okay, good. You're a human. It's okay. Failure is going to happen. You're going to drop the ball. But ordinary faithfulness has the long game in perspective. As Eugene Peterson says, it is a long obedience in the same direction. You'll veer off course every now and then but you're moving in the same direction because you have a future perspective. So we actually now live in the in-between. So we can look to the past and say, yes and amen, the gospel's been accomplished on my behalf and I've, uh, the, the Holy Spirit's applied to it. I've confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and I'm chosen and I have his favor and I have his love, amen, and I'm looking forward to the future. He's coming I see where righteousness is going to dwell, and I don't know all of the details, but I can see it coming. But hey, Coleman, I live today. It's June 18th, 2017. I got a mortgage to pay. I got mouths to feed. What about today? I think Peter speaks to that. I think Peter tells us what the day-to-day looks like, or at least gives us a paradigm, if you will, of how to live in it. I love what Pastor David Helm says. So looking at the present, he says, For Peter then, and this is most important, the phrase, exiles of the dispersion, depicts the normative state of every follower of Jesus, so long as he or she remains in the world. We are strangers. We are exiles. We are aliens. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims in this world. This is not our home. We are pilgrims on a heavenward path. And so in the here and now, the struggle for many of us is that there are temptations to see this as our final destination. This world with its cares and its worries as the only thing. That's a reality for us. And we can admit that struggle and be okay in that. But while there's nothing wrong with enjoying and cultivating the gifts that God has given us in the here and now, I pray you do. I pray you do enjoy the richness of God's grace today. But in this present life, we can all too easily turn to enjoying these things apart from enjoying the creator. And so that's the temptation we need to push back against. So Peter reminds his readers of this temptation when he warns us not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance in verse 14. If you are in Christ, you have been rescued from the domain of darkness. Before Christ, 
you and I wandered in darkness, practicing the things of darkness and being in ignorance to the things of God. Well, here's the reality though. It's not that we were all doing the most bad that we could possibly do it all the time, right? You didn't just go and murder everybody who gave you a wrong look. But in your heart, you were far from God. In your heart, you were looking at how to satisfy yourself, how to satisfy your needs, your desires, your pleasures. And that represents a heart that was far from God. And so, we need to think about what it looks like in the present to live obedient lives for the Lord's glory. And the fear that Peter talks about here, he, he talks about fear, and this is not a fear of condemnation, but rather it is a holy fear which recognizes God's holiness and the respect due to him. Here, the Lord has ransomed us, Peter talks about. He has rescued us, he has redeemed us, and here's why that's good news for the present. Because again, we were enslaved to sin, we were enslaved to the principalities of the world, the darkness of the world, the spiritual forces of the world that are against God, but God rescued us and redeemed us, ransomed us out of those things so that here and now, this day, we can practice faithful obedience to his glory as a good master over his people. The reality of sin is that it is a horrible taskmaster. It will continue to beat you down, never relenting, always promising, but never delivering. And God, being a servant to the Lord, is the most joy-filled thing that we could ever desire. And if you are in Christ, that is true for you this day, that you have a, uh, you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a servant to righteousness. And who is the author of righteousness? It is God himself. And so we are servants to the Lord if we are in Christ. And it should be something that perpetuates joy and desire and love for the God who is good. Way more good than anything this world can ever possibly promise to us. It tries, but it'll never deliver. And so this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 23. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In the ancient world, typically people were bought back with, from, with monetary means, silver or gold, as Peter talks about. But the payment that Jesus has is eternal and everlasting. This reveals, again, the eternal nature of our salvation. So in the present, because we understand the work of Christ on our behalf and the coming redemption, we are to live now as a redeemed and transformed people. Yes, messy, but redeemed, set apart for God's work and his glory. Peter says, he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in order that, check this, we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the status in which you dwell, Christian. If you are in Christ, you 
have been called to declare his excellencies, of which there are infinite amount. You will never exhaust the list of excellencies to declare to the world around you. You are a living uh, work of God's excellency. To declare that alone, to say, this is who I used to be, but this is who I am now, that is a way to declare his excellencies. Have you seen what the Lord has done? Look at how excellent he is. Have you seen the creation of which he's given us? How excellent is that? You will never exhaust the list of excellencies to declare to your friends, to your neighbors, to those around you. This is how we are to live obedient lives. This is the kind of transformative love that we can practice. And we can practice it here today, Ridge. Among brothers and sisters here, you can practice this transformative love because it begins here. It begins in how you interact with one another. It begins in how your relationships with one another are formed. Because you have been transformed by the love of God, therefore you can display that to one another. Because you know God does not hold sin against you, you don't have to hold that sin against your brother or sister. This is the foundation of your relationships with other people in this room and those who are not here, is that the gospel and all its beauty and excellency is the foundation for which we can interact with one another because I don't have to fear your judgment. I don't have to fear whether I say something a certain way that may or may not uh, react with you the right way. I can know that because of the Holy Spirit indwelling me and because of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, we can have a mutual relationship of growth and love in order to together display the excellencies of God's grace. Because, as Jesus says, John 13, 35, they will know you belong to me by the love that you have for one another. So if it doesn't start here, it can't possibly be practiced outside these walls, right? So we need to think about loving others here as the center point of the gospel, the beginning point of the gospel, so that from these doors, out these doors, there can be a proclamation of God's excellencies and that your desire to obey the Lord would grow, perpetuate, as you continue to come, to gather together, to encourage one another, to hold each other accountable, to display the excellencies of the Lord together, to go back out, and again, and again, and again. This is the life of everyday normal obedience to the Lord. So why does this matter? What is all of this coming together to say? I love what George Whitfield, great revivalist preacher, said. He said, Nothing is more generally known than our duties which belong to Christianity. And yet, how amazing is it? Nothing is less practiced. Peter declares that we are to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded, holy in our conduct. Friends, you read the scriptures, I pray, and you know the duties that are upon us as Christians, yet are we practicing them? Is there a heart of obedience because you have been transformed by the gospel? Is there a heart of obedience because you have a joy that is uncontainable because of what the Lord has done in your life? Or right now are you thinking, I don't know if I have that joy. I don't know if I have that heart. My prayer for you today would be to maybe, for the first time, accept 
that salvation has come to you by Jesus Christ and that you, free from any sort of uh, obligation, can accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit can transform your heart, that he can bring about new desires and new joys because, good news, friends, this has been declared from before the beginning of time, that you would be a chosen one among the people of God. So maybe for some of us, that heart of joy is not there because that heart has never been formed to begin with. So, according to Peter, we're awaiting our final redemption so that we would display these excellencies to, the, to a lost world. And here's the reality, is that our obedience to God is a picture to the world. We are to be what I would call living works of art, displaying the riches of God's glory. While some may be tempted to retreat in order to be faithful, I don't believe that's what the gospel allows us to do. Well, we certainly shouldn't compromise. We certainly should not look at the culture and say, we'll take a little bit of this, we'll take a little bit of that, and add that to our gospel. We shouldn't compromise, but we should also not retreat as well. We should advance with the kingdom on our hearts and on our lips. And here's the reality for us, is that though we are likely worse than we think we are, God's love for you is deeper than you could ever imagine. Just pause and reflect on God's love right now. Have you ever taken a moment to do that? Just to think at how profound divine love is upon you as a believer in Jesus Christ? It's really hard sometimes to enter into that, isn't it? He loves me. I sinned yesterday. He loves me. I failed my spouse. He loves me. I haven't done something that he has called me to do for years. He still loves me. Yes. In the providence of God, in the declaration of the gospel, his love for you is deeper than you can ever imagine. And so that helps us in our everyday, ordinary obedience. Faithfulness arises out of a deep love and affection for God, grounded in love for a Savior who has transformed our hearts and given us new desires. And here's how we need to think about it, is that faith and obedience are two sides of the same gospel coin. It's one package. They come together. They feed off of each other. They work together in our hearts and our lives. Christian obedience recognizes that apart from the gospel, we have no hope. And therefore, our joy and delight to live in a manner which honors the Lord, loves others, and displays the riches of the glory it would happen in our everyday lives. Here's what Peter says later in chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So our obedience is not to be practiced in retreat and in private, although that should happen as well. Our obedience is to be before the Lord so that others may see his glory in what? Turn to him. It's an apologetic, it's an evangelistic task. 
that others would see the good deeds that we do because we love and uh, desire to know the Lord better, not because we are pointing to ourselves, but we're pointing to God's glory and the coming kingdom, looking forward, practicing today. So Ridge, everyone in here does have a context in which you can practice everyday, normal, regular obedience. Thinking through that. Your workplace, your home, your neighbors, your friends, people among here at the Ridge, the good news of the gospel is that our salvation is not dependent on our obedience, but our salvation is displayed in our obedience. It's not dependent, but displayed. So here's some questions as we begin to wrap up our time this morning. For all of us, do we have an ongoing and growing joy in obeying the Lord? If not, maybe we don't understand the gospel. Maybe we don't understand the character of our God if we don't have that growing joy. Do you understand that it is the gospel which grounds your identity and not something else that is temporal and fleeting? Your job is not your identity. Your family is not your identity. Your uh, ability to act and to serve and to work in certain ways is not your identity. Your identity, Christian, is in the gospel of Jesus Christ who bought you with a price, who saved you and redeemed you. That is your identity. So does obedience come out of that? Or is it coming out of something else? Do you have a heart that longs after maybe temporary relief of the world's comforts? Or do you have a heart that longs for the eternal relief that comes at the end of an obedient life lived for God's glory? Friends, there are lots of questions to consider when we think about the heart of obedience as a Christian. Everyone in here is going to have a slightly different story, a slightly different journey, but it will all be in the same direction if you are in Christ, and it will all have the same story as its genesis, the gospel of Jesus Christ propelling you forward, building up your desires, building up your hope, building up your strength and knowing that the Lord is with you and that will never leave you. Those are the things which are true for Christians in here today, and if it's not true for you, that there would be a gospel awakening in your heart to see the Lord as most beautiful, most desirous, most glorifying, so that you would have a heart of obedience. Obedience apart from the gospel will always be fruitless, will always be joyless, and will always ultimately be defeating. So let's pray 